So the anthem that I was introduced to at the age of nine years old was the anthem of freedom, a song of freedom that every South African boy and girl who was not of the population group of the European descendants that settled in South Africa learned this song. Africa Malupakanisu Fundulayo Eva im ten thanda Zoyethu Ozi Sikalela Fina Luzafulayo Iza moya, Iza moya, Singweli Kozi Isikalela Fina Luzafulayo So at the age of 12 years old At the, tw- at, the, at the age of 12 years old, I learned the anthem and I learned this declaration. Amandla! Which means power to the people. It wasn't black power only, but it was power to the people. And so there I was being raised in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, with this um, tension between the settlers of European descendants that came back in 1652... Firstly, Vasco da Gama came in 1428. Then Jan van Riebeek from the Dutch came in 1652. Then the British settlers came in 1820. And as a result of those three nations from Europe, South Africa was possessed and raped of its land and its people. And we had a saying, the missionaries and the Europeans came with the Bible in their hand and no land. And now we as South Africans have no land and the Bible in our hand. And we had to work through all of those tensions that occurred in our land. So when it comes to the whole area of diversity and equality in diversity in our world today, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 and 10 these words, And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God. Notice these next words. Persons from, say it with me, every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I mean, intellectually, we all understand the creative genius of God to form the earth with different majestic sights, vistas beyond our imagination, and in those places geographically to plant a people, an array of people groups for His pleasure. Imagine God in heaven on His throne, and He hears the worship from Japan all the way over to Hawaii, and he hears them singing in their tongue. And with the expression, God is never bored in heaven when he hears the voices and the language and the tribes worship him every time they gather together in his name. Can somebody amen? Say amen. And you know, every one of us, as God's creation, carries a uniqueness inside of us. 
Paul captures this truth for us. He said that God made each of us a masterpiece, a unique creation, a specific genetic makeup who are one of a kind with an iris pattern and a fingerprint that is different and never to be repeated. Imagine that. Imagine that that every one of us carrying this uniqueness have been created to glorify God. Imagine this truth that your voice box is unique. Every face differs from each other. Even identical twins or triplets eventually show their differences as they mature. Hmm. So where did the race, tribe, language issue all begin? Well, at the Tower of Babel, you remember the story. When God changed the ability of humanity to communicate with each other and gave them a new language. So that when the, the dude asked for a, 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 a brick, they, they offered him sand. And when the dude asked for some wood, they, they, they offered him you know, some, some, some grass. And so, so there was this language change that came to the people who were trying to build a tower to reach heaven. And God caused confusion to come upon them and gave them a different language. And out of that different languages came different cultures. People began to create different levels of society based on knowledge. And knowledge became power early in that society, especially after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, when man went on a conquest to rule. You not only see that when God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to rule over the garden and over the the animals uh, of of the ground, and, and where he was to give power and authority through, through the names that he gave to all of the animals. Imagine an elephant being called an elephant and an ant being called an ant. When we compare the names that Adam gave to each of the animals, you know you can't call an ant an elephant because it just doesn't match, right? And so, so when God gave him the creative genius to name every animal and every plant in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that God gave Adam authority to rule over the animals and to have dominion over the earth. And hence our desire to have control and rulership over, whether it be a land or a people, was established there in the very beginning. And hence jealousy and envy came into the second generation of offspring from Adam and Eve being Cain and Abel. When one sacrifice was accepted by God, the other became jealous and envious. And he wanted to rule and have dominion and Cain killed Abel. And so there in the very beginning, we have this unfortunate circumstance of one tribe wanting to rule over another, one brother trying to rule over another, people wanting to have dominion over another. And I'll never forget this word from Dr. Gordon Franklin at Vanguard College, who said this in our first Corinthians class one day. He said this, division is demonic, but diversity is divine. When you look at the faces in this crowd, 70%, 60, 70% are of wasp background. That is white, 
Anglo-Saxon Protestant background and foundation. Most of you coming from a European descendancy. And we find ourselves generations later in Canada wrestling with attitudes and convictions that have been passed down to us from our great-grandparents and from our grandparents and from our parents through their descendants that came from Europe. But Canada is a nation of immigrants. Canada is a nation that has gathered nations from all over the globe. And even in your church here and in this city of Calgary, the churches that you represent, I'm sure there's a diversity within your, within your congregation of many tribes and many languages and many tongues. And if I ask Pastor Ben how many people are represented from different nations in this very church, there'd probably be 60 to 70 nations represented in this particular place. As a result of that trickle-down attitudes from our European descendants, we find ourselves wrestling with this idea of white privilege, white supremacy. And it came from the French and the British and the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Dutch And it came from the Vikings and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Germans. They were all determined to expand their kingdoms throughout the earth. Hence many wars were fought and the subjugation of nations began the race war to conquer a people group and rape their land and their wealth and their people, subjecting them to an inferior position because they had knowledge and power over them. You look at all the wars that has been fought throughout the earth. And you look at all that which has been done even in the name of religion. And how people have been subjected to all kinds of discrimination for their diversity. Just by the color of their skin. So where did my journey begin? My journey began, obviously, in Cape Town, South Africa, the 17th of December, 1961. I was born uh, in a home of a father and a mother, on the next slide, a father and a mother who came from my dad on the left-hand side, German-English descendancy, and my mom on the right-hand side, Filipino-German descendancy. So to all my Filipinos, mangandanga gabipo. All right, all of my Filipinos, kumusta kayo kapamilya? Ah, mabuti, yeah. You know, and so, so, so I know in my heart that I have this love for my Filipino roots and I have this love for my British roots and I have this love for my, my double German roots. And so I'm doubly stubborn. I'm a kraut. You're looking at a Heinz 57 in front of you here. And so my mom and dad got married in 1947. And in 1949, after my daddy came back from the war, on the next slide, my mom and dad had received a letter from the government in 1949 that my father, who fought in the Second World War in the South African Air Force, was told by the white government of South Africa, if he wanted to maintain his marriage to my mom, he had to give up his status as a white in order to remain married to this Filipino German lady. And if he didn't want to uh, divorce her or have his marriage annulled, he would lose his white status, he would lose his white pension, he would have to move out of the community of Cork Bay where he was born and raised, 
And he and my mom had to move now into a restricted colored community called Heathfield because he wanted to remain married to my mom. My mom got saved, born again as a Roman Catholic, three months after they were married. My dad got saved one year after my mom. And as a result, when my dad got saved in 1948 and this letter came in 1949, my dad said, no, I love my wife. I'm married to her. And as a result of that, I I want to stay committed to her. And so I'm going to change my status. And the white South African government gave my dad the status of other colored. Other colored. Now my dad's father um, had nine sons and four girls. And my daddy had uh, grown up in this community of Cork Bay on the next slide, which was a fishing village. This was the boat that my father skippered for 38 years called the Madeira. They handlined fish like most Newfoundland handlined fishermen, you know, in that early years. And my dad worked very hard on the, the, the waters of the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean catching fish for 38 years to feed our family of six kids and mom and him. And as a result of, of fishing the waters of Cape Town, South Africa, Cape Town is this beautiful place, as you see on the next slide, a, a city of about three million people in Cape Town, South Africa. And in this gorgeous point where the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean meets, there was a system of racism by law known as apartheid introduced in 1949 when the National Party came into power and the whites took control of South Africa to rule and reign until Nelson Mandela was voted in in 1994 as the first democratically chosen president of South Africa. And yet in the midst of this terrible climate politically, racism began to separate my father's family Four of his brothers and two of his sisters married people of British descendancy, of German descendancy, and of uh, Spanish descendancy. And they were forced by the government to live on the other side of the tracks. And my dad with three of his brothers and two of his sisters who married Filipinos, Javans, and St. Helenans were forced to move now to this colored community away from the bay that they were born in, Cork Bay, and they could never have relationship for 46 years. My dad never saw his white brothers and sisters. I grew up not knowing my dad's white brothers and sisters and their children. Never met my white cousins in my life to this day. And apartheid literally means to tear apart, to keep apart. The Afrikaans word means to separate with the intention of ruling and controlling and dominating a culture. On the next slide, I had to carry with me a passbook that if I didn't have my identity document with me as a Cape Colored of South Africa, that was the tag the white government gave me, I would be thrown in prison for three days without my parents knowing where I was. Happened to me twice. I forgot my passbook and I didn't have it in my blazer of my uniform pocket. And the police arrested me and threw me in prison for several hours. My mom knew I wasn't coming home at supper time and wondered where I was. And then I came back and in prison, they beat me 17, 18, 20 times with what they called an arp stare. 
An upset is a long plastic rod, thicker on this side, thinner at the end, and they'd whip you over your butt and over your back for not having your passbook with you. I was banned from being in the city of Cape Town or the place of my employment as a teenager between the hours of 8 and 3.30. I could only be in the city when I was working. But if I was found in the city after hours as a colored child, I was arrested and thrown in prison. And if I didn't know my number up there, look at the number, 6112175044012. If I couldn't recite that number to a white South African policeman, I was beat. And the 01 is the tag Cape Colored, and 2 is second generation. 5044 was the block and the street on which my dad's house was in a colored community. They knew where you lived by your identity document. And born in that culture of my colored uncles and aunts only being together, we were often tested by the police with the the pencil test. And here's what they did. They determined if you were white or if you were colored when they stuck a pencil in your hair and they told you to bend down 90 degrees. And if the pencil fell out of your hair, you were colored. But if the pencil remained stuck in your hair, you were a black person. And you were kicked out and thrown into jail. And that's the very oppressive city that I grew up in called Cape Town, South Africa. This Group Area Act obviously tore my heart and my family apart, and we were angry. My father was angry, and all of us as kids were angry until the Lord met my dad and turned his heart around to start loving all races, even his oppressors. And my father began to create a culture within our home of respecting every people group that existed in the world. And my father made a commitment that in his ministry, he would invite people from Guguletu and Nayanga and, and uh, from, from different places around the Cape where, where our, our, our Zulu and our Koza and our Venda uh, people were living in shanties, in corrugated zinc iron shacks, such as in Freigrond, which means free ground such as uh, Hanover Park and these places where the poorest of the poorest were invited into our home Sunday after Sunday to break bread together with us. And we would go into this shanty town, little, uh, uh, we call them hockeys, and, and, and we would break bread together with them and eat a simple bowl of soup and some bread. When James was a little boy, I, I took him to these places and he ate at the meals, at some of those most beautiful four-course meals that people prepared for our family. And it seemed like we were eating their entire food budget for the week. But those people learned to be generous. And they sang the song of the Lord in their heart, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And so I had to come to a place in my heart where I had to answer the question of diversity and celebrating equality with all races in South Africa. 
And the Lord began to show me how he was going to prepare me for that. On the next slide, you will see some little pictures of some of the opportunities God gave me through athletics to, to win some awards. And that's just a little picture of my trophy. On the next slide, God began to give me wisdom to become a bit more popular in athletics. And as a result, I was voted in as the head boy or the head prefect of our school where I was given the responsibility to, to, to keep order and to make sure that everyone wore their uniforms because under our British school system, we wore this jacket and we wore this tie and white shirt and gray bras and black shoes. And, and so I had to do inspection to make sure everyone was wearing it. And when they just lined up for the cafeteria time or when they lined up for assembly, the prefects were to keep order in that place. And from 1979 to 1981, I served on this prefect board until I was positioned in grade 12 to be the head boy of our school. Two of our school books, that one over there and on the next slide is another one, which will show you how through the inside of our community, we wanted to speak up against uh, no freedom of the press writing, no freedom of speech and no freedom of being able to see things what it is. But the government through their propaganda told us this is what we could speak, see, and write. Both those yearbooks were banned by the white South African government. And there I am in the middle right at the bottom as the head boy and the head prefect with my beard just looking like James's at 18 years old. <laughs> there I was in the rugby um, team and I was the captain of our team of that rugby squad. And on the next slide, there's an athletic squad. And I was the captain of that athletic squad in 1981. And God gave me the opportunity to develop my skills and leadership to help me say, I must love all races and accept all people, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, nominal faith people, People from other nations that came to our school, Congolese people, Nigerians, you know, people from, from Rwanda. In Cape Town today, there are over 17,000 Rwandans living in Cape Town in a shanty town called Kayalicha because they escaped the genocide when the war was between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And my father taught us that we have to feed the hungry clothe the naked, accept the stranger, and welcome the refugees into our home. And can you see how through positioning me in that place of leadership, God began to teach me how I needed to change my heart and follow the example of my father to love everybody. Well, it came time for me to graduate high school. And as a result of uh, that, I applied to the University of South Africa. And I received a letter from the University of Cape Town and Stellenbosch and UWC and Wits University that said, you are blacklisted as a South African and you are not allowed to study past grade 12. And I said, Lord, what's that about? I thought that you were paving the way for me to become an influencer in this land. And then the Lord spoke to me and said in my devotions, I'm going to speak to you this morning. And as I came to church that morning, my spirit began to quiver inside and I just felt this tremor inside of me. And uh, one of the deacons in my father's church prophesied and said, 
There's a person in this house today that is standing at the gate of decision. He can choose a path that will give people a temporal solution to their problems. Or he can choose a path that will give them an eternal solution to their problem. And God is going to take him out of this country in a supernatural way. And God will provide all of his needs. And he will be welcomed in a new nation, in a new country, with a new family. And I was shaking. And I I walked up to the front and I I turned to my dad who was sitting in the front row and said, Daddy, I believe that's me. And so he said, okay, son. He called me up to the front. He got the elders around me and the deacons. And he laid hands on me and he prayed over me and he prophesied. And he said, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in Simon's life. That week, my brother in Edmonton, Alberta, who studied at Vanguard College, calls home and says, I've been praying and God spoke to me last Sunday and said I need to take you in as a brother and offer you an opportunity to come and be my youth pastor and my music pastor in Vegreville, Alberta. And from that day, I applied for my police clearance. I applied for my police clearance. I applied for my student authorization. I applied for my medical that I had to go to England and back again. I applied uh, for, obviously, all of the necessary tests that needed to be done. And within, listen to this, 17 days from my application to Vanguard College, I got a return letter back 37 years ago. It took a month and a half for a letter to go back and forth from Edmonton to Cape Town. And in 17 days, I heard back from NBC that you are welcome as a foreign student. And from there, God gave the miracle. The day I left South Africa, I found myself at the airport without a police clearance. Because unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that I was blacklisted in 1979. For carrying a placard during the struggle of South Africa on our school grounds... And the placard I was carrying said, the only solution is a revolution. And someone snapped a picture of me. And as a result of them snapping that picture on me, they sent it into the police. And they registered my name, Simon Sinclair Clarence, in their database. He is a threat to the future of South Africa. So I'm at the airport, at DF Milan Airport. In Cape Town, South Africa. And my father says, we are going to the airport. We are going to believe you leaving by faith. And we're just going to send you off with prayer and a song. And as they are around me and they lay in hands on me and they're singing this song. Till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. God be with you till we meet again. I feel a hand in my hand. And I turn and I look and I see it's a man by the name of Ivan Adonis. And he says to me, as soon as you kiss your mom and dad goodbye, I'm going to walk you to the international gates. And I'm going to say goodbye to you. I said, okay, no problem. And so I kiss everyone, hug them. And I'm walking with Ivan towards the international gates. And I hear him say, Simon, turn left. And I look. I said, what do you mean? He said, turn left. I said, no, the gate's over here. He says, no, turn left with me. We're going through this door. And we walk through the door. And as soon as we come to the other side, Ivan closes the door. And everyone on the other side of the door salutes him. And I look at him and I say in Afrikaans, what the fab on a Jay, a Jay, a sellout? I said to him, what an idiot you are. Are you a sellout? What are you? He says, your dad doesn't know. But I am, this is my airport. 
God elevated me to be the chief inspector for any bombs that are placed on airplanes in this country during this transition time of South Africa. And, and I have been given the head position in this place so that you can leave this country because your application for police clearance is stuck in Musenberg on a white sergeant's desk. And they won't release it. And so God established me to be in this airport in this position so you can leave this country supernaturally. Make a long story short, I arrived in Canada the first Sunday in Vegreville, Alberta. A couple come up to me after the service by the name of Russell and Vicky Sloboda. And they say to me, God spoke to us back in December on a Sunday. Russell was feeding the chickens and the cows chop. And I was in the kitchen preparing for my family's meal. And the Lord said to me, as a mother of seven, you're going to have another child. And Vicky argues with God and says, Lord, I'm past childbirth. And the Lord says to her, no, I'm going to give you an already mature child. You're going to take him in as a son. And you're going to have him live with you. And you and Russell are going to love him as your own. Now remember, I was taken out of the context of my colored community. And now planted into a European Canadian white home with seven children. And I worked on that farm for seven months. During that time, God prospered Russell and Vicky Sloboda so much. They had more twin calves born that year than in any time of their history. Their crops grew like crazy and the yield of their barley and their oats and their rye was phenomenal. That at the end of the season, when he paid me, he paid me $48,000. And it paid for four years of Bible college and I never owed no man a cent. The prophecy came true over my life. And God was showing me that he cares about each one of us. He cares about your future. He cares and you matter to him. No matter what background, no matter what race, what creed, what tribe you come from, you matter to God. And in the midst of all of that journey to Canada... God showed me his faithfulness. As you go to the next slides, in South Africa, we experienced the riots of South Africa from 1976 to 1992. This picture on the left-hand side is a picture of a boy by the name of Hector Peterson who was carrying a battery for his father to be charged at a garage. And the riot police of South Africa shot him to death and here he is being carried by a, a strong young man and his sister Antoinette Sitole, who is running beside them as they are rushing him to hospital. Hector became the first martyr of the struggle for freedom in South Africa. And as a result of that, on the next slide, we began to see the riots of South Africa take place in 1976. I was in junior high and I was... Uh, I, I was in the school called Heathfield High School, where it was a senior secondary school, junior high and senior high together, and we began to, to obviously boycott the inferior education that we as coloreds were receiving from this white government. And as a result of these riots in South Africa in 1976, we sat out of class for seven months, and the white government failed every colored, every Indian, every black child in 1976, set them back 
for punishment for standing up against the inferior education. On the next slide, you will see that this is what I faced. Riot squads of South Africa who would hover over us and shoot tear gas into our school fields. And in one day, listen folks, I lost 47 of my friends who died. We had mass funerals. And to this day, I still suffer from PTSS. And I don't have the ability to hold my fingers still because my body physically still suffers from the tremors of that atrocities of riot police shooting 47 of my friends to death in front of us, a school of 1,300 kids. Can you imagine your eyes burning like hell from tear gas? Can you imagine being shot with real bullets or rubber bullets as I was on several occasions when we marched to the parliament buildings? And it was all for the freedom of this next slide man. A man by the name of Madiba to us, Nelson Mandela, who was in prison from the year I was born, 1961 to 1992. And he said this on the day he was released from prison. He wanted to form a rainbow nation where all nations were equal, one man, one vote in South Africa, where red and yellow, black and white, where whites, coloreds, Indians and blacks, and every tribe and tongue that is gathered on the southern tip of Africa was able to live in peace. And he said this, as I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and my hatred behind, I'd still be in prison inside. Yeah. He had a choice to love. Those who threw him in prison. And he made that choice. But you see, when you live in a society like that, even when my wife and I got married, I went to South Africa for a honeymoon with Ruth in 1987. My father had to apply for a permit for her as a white Canadian to live in my dad's colored community house and to worship at my dad's colored church. Here's an example of a permit that was, was given to some colored people, on the next slide, who were allowed to attend a wedding. And I'll read you what the fine print says there in point number three. It says, it is given to Glen Club Golf Club in Camps Bay, Cape Town, South Africa, to enable 18 members of the colored group named on the reverse of this permit to occupy together with whites, on the 24th of February, 1974, on the occasion of a wedding reception. And then note B, that the coloreds mentioned may only as coloreds attend the wedding and reception, and that the coloreds do not participate in any dancing that may take place for fear that they may dance with whites. 1974. And yet, as we see, this type of permit existed even when I had to apply for my wife to come on our honeymoon. And as we traveled through South Africa, up to, uh, through the garden route to, to Johannesburg, Cape Town, I had to stay in a colored hostel, and my wife had to stay in a white hotel. We couldn't eat together in public places. We had to buy food and eat it in our car, because we couldn't sit together in 1987 in South Africa. And so as you look at that and you grow up in that for 20 years of your life as a human being, 
and you are suppressed and oppressed by a government that rules, we, we know that that impacts your self-esteem. That impacts your outlook on life. That impacts your ability to, to love all those that God has placed around you. And for 20 years, South Africa has been in this process of change as a new young democracy. And it's going to take, in my estimation, two generations to work through this sight of, oh, you white, or you colored, or you Nigerian, or you Congolese, or you Indian, or you are this or that. Because I believe that unless God comes and brings the miracle in our hearts, we always have the possibility or propensity to see color. So let's bring it down to where you and I live. After leaving South Africa, I had to find that I needed to have room in my heart to love Canadians. Whether you're from Africa, whether you're from uh, Lebanon, whether you're from India, whether you're from the Philippines, whether you're from whatever nation or tribe, God forced me as a young Bible college student in Canada to engage. And this is how I did it. The Bible says, practice hospitality. I made a decision to invite all nations to my apartment and cook them South African food. I cooked Indian food, biryani, lamb curry, chicken curry, made some mousses, made dolchies. I then began to feed all of these nations, even Canadian, European background nations, people, food that would, you know, students are always hungry and they have no money for, for food, right? And so, so we would have these parties and I'd call it, pack the place. I would open up my heart and my home and my wallet to feed them and bless them with food. And food became a way, as you can see, every bit of me possesses everything that I've eaten for 57 years. And God began to stir my heart to, to have some of my best friends become people from not only Canadian context, European descendants, but Ethiopians and First Nations peoples. And on the next slides, you will see how God began to draw my heart to, to a people group of First Nations around the community of Devon where God asked me to go and plant a church. And Devon was surrounded by five First Nations communities. Enoch Reserve, Lac-Saint Anne, Alexandria Reserve, Hobima, now called Mashkwashish, Samson Reserve. And uh, we were surrounded by all of these reserves and I purposely chose to go and meet brothers and sisters in Christ to confront any prejudice that potentially may grow up in my heart that would separate me in my humanity and my relationship with them. And I asked the question, how can I serve you and make life better for you as a local pastor? After 17 years of relationship building in and around Devon with First Nations people, I was adopted officially into the Cree Nation through Matthew Auger and Deborah Manus, they blanketed me and they gave me a name and they called me Okimau, which means Father of Wisdom among us. And they have loved me and respected me 
because I have chosen to, to be with them, to enjoy their culture and to enjoy their, 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 their fellowship. And when I go up to Carlin Lake and Sandy Lake, where we planted two churches of First Nations focused community groups, where Adolphus Francis, uh, Adolf, Adolf and Francis um, are, are serving as pastors in those two communities, we have taken our church with to build, to paint, to improve the playgrounds of the schools and the community, but taken them the gospel of Jesus Christ in love. Those men and women, Matthew Oje, Perry Lightning, have become Deborah Manus, some of my dearest friends. And in this picture, you see a picture on the right-hand side of the National Aboriginal Ministries team across Canada for our fellowship as the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, who I represented as the representative for Alberta, for First Nations, for seven years. Why? Because we love all nations. We commit ourselves to, to embracing all nations. On the next two slides, one of the men that was in my prayer group in Bible school is a man by the name of Terefa Sereki. And Terefa Sereki and a guy who started a church out of this church called Seaside Toy were two men that were in my Bible college uh, classes and prayer group. And we developed a relationship with each other. As a result of our relationship over 31 years, Seaside Toy and also Terefa Sereki started international ministries that allows Ethiopians to reach out to Ethiopians and Canadians to join them in the journey. And so four years ago, I started to work with them with Covenant International Ministries. And listen to this. In Alberta, $1.6 million was given to sponsor 500 plus kids in Ethiopia just last year. From Ethiopians that are giving back with Canadians to educate, to feed, and to develop uh, co-ops for agri agriculture in Ethiopia so that their land and their people can prosper and be blessed. When you come alongside people of different races, they welcome you. And so I learned to enjoy the food of Ethiopians as they bring that big platter out with that beautiful foods and they, they begin to eat from the same uh, plate and they put their hands in the same plate. And they eat together some of the greatest tasting food. And as we break bread together, they welcome you and they love you. And they ask you to link arms with them to reach the lost. So today, as I reflect on the journey of inclusivity, of showing that we are all born and created to reflect the glory of God. And to accept one another Whatever race, creed, language, tongue, or tribe we come from. So where does this leave you and us tonight? Well, we need to address the inner attitudes of our hearts. We need to address the fact that we don't feel comfortable if we don't know a people group. And here's what I did. I chose to every time I see a person of another tribe, tongue, or nation to always reach out and greet them and to ask them, what's your name? When did you arrive in Canada? Tell me just briefly your story 
And I would like to just know. And yesterday at a fast gas in Leduc, Alberta, I saw this gentleman who was of African descendancy filling his tank. And while I'm filling my tank, I say, hey, how's it going? He said, good. And he looks at me. I said, Amandla. <laughs> and he looks at me. He says, hey, you're from South Africa. I says, yeah, I'm a diva, my boy. I said, he says, I'm from Zimbabwe. I said, wonderful. How long have you been here? He says, well, I live in Calgary. I'm just guessing. I said, I'm going to Calgary tomorrow as well. And I'm going to be preaching there. And he says, oh, what do you do? And I told him, I'm a counselor and I was a former pastor. And in just a few exchanges, you should see how his face lit up. That somebody took the time to greet him. Do you include them in your social times at Starbucks, at Tim's? Do you welcome them into your apartment and break bread together and, and, and prepare a Canadian meal? And just to love them and invite them into your home. Do you include them in your study groups? That they are part of, of you every day. That when you sit with Lebanese and when you sit with Chinese and when you sit with all nations that are at your university and colleges, that you can expand your understanding of how much God loves people. I wear this particular bracelet in the front here because it is a reminder to me of the killing fields of Cambodia. We're in the Pol Pot regime in 1996 and 97. Thousands of people were killed by their leader. Babies were taken and thrown up in the air for his troops to shoot them for target practice. Babies were taken by their legs and beat against killing trees. And this little thing reminds me of the grace of God that I was not killed and shot and that I pray for the Cambodian children and their parents who have walked through the trauma of this regime that killed hundreds and thousands of Cambodian children Fathers and mothers. Think about it. Do you have compassion for the Vietnamese? For the Guatemalans? Do you have compassion for the Hondurans? Do you have compassion for the Syrians? That when you see a Syrian family trying to find the groceries in a superstore, you can say, hey, can I help you? I'll show you where all the main goods are. Just ask me, because this is where I shop at Safeway or at Walmart. Can, can you open up your heart to the stranger and show them the love and compassion of your life? Is there such a thing as white privilege? Absolutely. Sociologists tell us that by and large, those who are preferred in positions of authority and power are often those who have fair skin. Interesting, isn't it? So how do you as fair-skinned descendants engage women, especially women of color who have a double disadvantage if they are black and a woman, if they are Spanish and a woman? Can you invite them into your world through the power of love, acceptance, and welcome and forgiveness. See, we have to address the issues of our hearts towards the nations in our land. Attitudes that impact all of us in a negative way. Be intentional 
on reaching out to all those who are excluded in our world. Have a spirit of inclusivity. Invite each other over to your apartments of fellowship. Develop affinities in your educational world, in your recreational world. Even if it's dog training or fly fishing that you enjoy, find someone from another nation and give them the skills how to fly fish on this amazing Bow River that we live nearby. Purpose in your heart to engage all races, gender, and language groups. I close with this. For the first 14 years of James's life, he never had any idea whatsoever that one of his uncles belonged to the gay community. And for the first 13 years of his life with Uncle Lloyd, he saw nothing but love from his papa and his nanny to their brother. And when Uncle Lloyd brought Uncle Andre to the Pentecostal Brayside camp, to our family reunions, he saw nothing but his mother and his father put their arms around Uncle Lloyd and Andre. And I'd kiss them on the cheek and I'd sit with them and I'd, I'd welcome them in conversation. And, and James grew up for the first 14 years of his life never knowing. He just thought that's his buddy. Until it clicked when Andre left Uncle Lloyd and brought Calvin into his life. It was a backslidden Pentecostal Jamaican. And Calvin came with Uncle Lloyd to this camp. And then it clicked in James and Jenna's mind that grandpa's brother belonged to the community of the homosexual community. And I see my son. Every time after that when Uncle Lloyd came to camp, purpose in his heart to place himself in front of his uncle and express inclusivity and love and care. That to this day, when Uncle Lloyd talks to us about his life in private, he says, I know I have found love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And if there's anyone I will call on the last moment of my life, I know I'm stuck in a prison. Uncle Lloyd grew up in a Pentecostal church in Harrison, Ontario. But something defiled him. A judgment came upon him. And he walked away from the church. But he said, if I'm ever in trouble, I know I can call on somebody in this family. And that is Doris Isabel Rome, who has loved me as a brother-in-law for 57 years. Never judged me. Do you include all and not show indifference to people in their journey through life to come to the love and grace and acceptance of God. God spoke to me through Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 one day and said, Simon, if you're going to be healed from your history in South Africa, you need to live this verse. Because if you don't live it, two things are going to happen to you. And Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, 
by allowing a little root of bitterness to grow up in their heart. Bitterness often against people or those that were unjust to you. And if you allow that little root of bitterness to grow up in your heart and you despise people because of the color of their skin or what they did to you, you will have much trouble in your life and many will be defiled by you. And I said, Lord, I never want to defile anybody. I don't want to have trouble in my life. I need to deal with this little root of bitterness in my heart towards the white government of South Africa. And guess what? My first year in Canada, God gave me six Canadian kids. They come as white as they can. Scottish, Irish kids in Vegreville, Alberta, who loved me as a, quote, colored kid for five years of my life. And God used Reg and Caroline and Kristen and Dean and Grant to love on me as a Sunday school teacher and their youth pastor, and God healed my heart completely, and I got rid of that bitterness towards white people. Vicky and Russell, when they accepted me into their family as a son, and to this day I call them mom and dad, Sloboda. I passionately care for them now in their aging years, making sure that they are okay. So who in your life whether it is someone from a diverse background or someone in your life that has caused a little root of bitterness to grow up in your heart. And in your heart, you you even have this attitude that comes forth. You don't know where it comes from, but you're uncomfortable if you're on a greyhound bus when a First Nations person comes and sits beside you. Purpose in your heart to step across the line into their world and engage him with beautiful conversation and watch how God turns your heart around and you'll see with different eyes. Is that your desire? To accept all mankind. Father, today, we thank you that you are our God and that every nation matters that one day as we read from Revelation chapter 5, every tribe, tongue, language and nation will stand before the throne. For you purchased each of us with your blood. And you have gave us this wonderful gift of belonging to your kingdom. And you've given us now this joy in the church age to gather with the nations under our places of worship and in our communities we serve in to give us a little microcosm of what heaven is going to be like. So we may as well get used to enjoying life with all nations on earth because in heaven it's going to be like that for eternity and we're all going to stand around the throne and we're going to sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and that we will enjoy the fruits of inclusivity of all nations in our lives and we will be better people because of it. Thank you today for this beautiful group of young adults, millennials that are encountering all the nations in their campuses, in their workplaces. May we have a genuine compassion and a heart to accept and love and include all the nations of the world for you did in your redemption plan. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, come on.